0: The Capital Weekly podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.
1: Greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Steve Wiegand, uh, who I knew in his previous life as a reporter extraordinaire. He was with the San Diego uh, Union Tribune, was with uh, the San Francisco Chronicle for many years, and also with the Sacramento Bee. He's also an author now, and his latest book is The Dancer, The Dreamers, and The Queen of Romania. And if that title doesn't grab you, I don't think anything will. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much for showing us today.
2: Thank you, John, and good
1: talk to you. Yeah, good talking to you. Nice to catch up. I um, can't imagine, in fact, we just talked about this before the before we started taping, but uh, it was hard to imagine a story about this uh, museum, the Mary Hill Museum of Art, located in the boonies, about 100 miles east of Portland. And you came across it. You mentioned you were driving back from Canada. You came across it, and it piqued your interest on a number of different levels and your book partly is a description of this museum how it got started and that kind of thing so uh, tell us a little bit about what what about this grabbed your interest
2: well we as, as you mentioned it's, it really is in the middle of nowhere it's uh, in one sense it's the largest art museum in the world because it's situated on 5,000 acres of open space that the museum itself owns and it's a spectacular setting on the on the cliff above the Columbia River, uh, as you mentioned, a hundred miles or so east of Portland. Um, what caught our interest in it was the fact that it's this sort of a Gothic Beaux Arts mansion, again out in the middle of nowhere, that has become a museum. And my wife and I were coming back from Canada, uh, stopped and took a tour of it and talked to the staff and the more they talked about it the more I got intrigued by the the reason it was there and the people that had uh, had founded it.
1: Uh you mentioned it, the the dancer uh is Louis Fuller. The dreamers uh are Sam Hill and uh Alma Speckles. And the queen of Romania is was the queen of Romania. And actually, quite popular. She was really amazing. You know, I didn't even know maybe had a queen, i blush to say. And she was apparently quite popular in the U.S., or at least well-known in the U.S. during the 20s.
2: Yeah, she was extremely well-known. She was uh, sort of a cross between uh, uh, the Madonna of her day and the Princess Di of her day. <laughs> uh, she was regarded to be one of the most beautiful women in the world. And... Uh, had been been a war hero uh, during World War I because she had sort of fearlessly uh, run hospitals for cholera victims and uh, war wounded and uh, was very outspoken in, in her uh, opposition to the Germans. And uh, so she'd become very popular in the United States.
1: And she was friends with Sam Hill, right? So together, sort of like they're synergy i mean their interest in the arts and their interest in his interest in his abilities in business and he was kind of a odd guy too on one hand i think you describe him some people thought he was a visionary and some people thought he was crazy as an outhouse rat but he was really sort of an amazing business guy and they just seemed like a the original odd couple somehow they weren't really a couple physically as i understand it but they were platonicer friends and you know respected each other
2: the both Both uh, Sam Hill and the Queen and Loie Fuller the dancer and Alma Spreckels the wealthy San Francisco socialite all knew each other through this kind of web of Sam knew Alma Spreckels and her husband quite well. Loie Fuller knew the Queen of Romania quite well. Alma Spreckels met Loie Fuller in Paris and got to know her uh, through Alma, she got to know Sam Hill, and the, the four of them. You talked about the synergy. That's that's really each of them had a little bit different role to play in the uh-huh. creation of this this very unlikely museum uh, in Washington State. And, uh, and, and all four of them had were amazing characters in their own right. Um, you mentioned Sam Hill, and Sam Hill was a Quaker born in North Carolina. Sam family moved to Minnesota to, because they were anti-slavery and they had to get out of South Carolina during the Civil War. Sam became a lawyer, went to Harvard, uh, became a uh, prominent lawyer in Minnesota, married the daughter of a railroad tycoon named James J. Hill, and uh, oh, God, God. lived under James J. Hill's shadow. There were no relation; It was a hill marrying yeah. a hill.
1: So her name was Mary Hill Hill.
2: <laughs> her name was Mary Hill Hill. Uh, Sam's oldest daughter was named Mary Hill, and his mother-in-law was named Mary Hill. So guess what he named his community when he went to Washington?
1: <laughs> and he originally thought of that as like a Quaker haven, right? He 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 was Quaker, so he. But he was the only one, he was the only one in the area, I think, right?
2: That's it. The original idea he had. he been a. He went to, He moved to Seattle because he was tired of living under his father-in-law's shadow. So he moved to Seattle, became a uh, owned the utility company there, owned a telephone company in Portland. It was quite wealthy, and he bought five thousand acres in uh, central Washington State. and He was going to create a utopian Quaker uh, community, uh, sort of like Whittier, California, is. In,
0: in I often think of Whittier as a utopian community myself.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, his name is Richard Nixon, so. Uh, Sam was, he couldn't, he had everything all set, but he couldn't get any people to come. Uh, it was a, it's a dry area, uh, it's, there's not a lot there to do except raise alfalfa and cattle. And uh, the whole idea of the community kind of flopped. So he decided to build this mansion uh, for he and his daughter who was, uh, had some real severe mental and emotional problems. And he was gonna live in this beautiful setting um, but he could never stay in one place very long or, or concentrate on one thing. He, uh, during his lifetime, he traveled around the world twenty-five times. Made trips to Europe fifty-two times.
1: You know, I saw a description of his uh, traveling. He 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 went on the in nineteen oh one. He he took he traveled along the Siberian Trans-Siberian Railway before it was done. And I'm just trying to envision somebody going across Russia in, early, in the early 1900s along the path of the Siberian rail, And then, and he, uh, you know, he went to Japan a lot, too. In fact, he was a close, he, he loved Japan. I liked the people there.
2: Yeah, he was, one of his uh, key uh, passions was road building. He was convinced that uh, just as railroads had, had connected America in the, 18, in the late uh, 19th century, that the highways would be the lifeblood of America in the 20th century. So he was a tireless advocate for building roads, and he was actually decorated by uh, three different countries for his uh, efforts in uh, in advocating good road building. And one of those countries was Japan, so he made nine trips to Japan during his life.
1: When you see the museum, when you drive towards it, is it sort of in a flat plain area. I mean, it sort of looms. It's surprising how big it is in the middle of nowhere kind of thing. That's always, that's kind of disturbing when I see places like that. One immediately comes to mind in the Delta here near Sacramento. There's a, there's a home, a mansion, the Grand Island Mansion. And you come around a curve in the road. There is absolutely nothing out there. It's right on the slough, basically. And all of a sudden, this giant mansion looms out of nowhere. And you wonder what went in to build that and it was built in 1915. And I wondered, is that the same kind of feeling you get when you see the museum? A
2: little bit, but Mary Hill's a little different because it's on the the, Washington, the highway on the Washington side of the Columbia River is, a, for the most part, a narrow two-lane uh, road. Mary Hill sits on a shelf below the highway, so you only kind of catch a glimpse of it as you drive by. If you didn't, you, you come upon the entrance to it very suddenly and if you, you, it would be easy to miss it. Now, there is a big winery that is next door to the museum now, and that those are the only two things that are you know literally within miles of, of the place. But uh, you couldn't miss it, but when you get down, when you take the entrance uh, road to the museum itself, yeah, it's stunning because it is a, a multi-story, you know, good-sized uh, mansion, yeah. uh, well-preserved, beautiful ground. And it has this absolutely breathtaking view. if you look west, you're looking at Mount Hood, and uh, you're looking down into the the river itself, which is pretty spectacular
1: and, and Hill was really into cement, right? He really liked cement and concrete i I saw a photo of his house in Seattle It was also made of completely made of cement and concrete, and it actually had some of the roof area in that home, I'm not sure what you call it, but it's edging around the top looked a lot like the museum it looked a lot had that same kind of
2: the, the same architect who who designed the museum uh, or, or of course it was going to be a mansion before it was ever a museum yeah is the same architect that designed his seattle house and his seattle house which i've been to is pretty amazing uh it's one of the most expensive houses in seattle to this day in terms of its its real estate value but he not only built those two things out of concrete, uh, visitors to uh, the Canadian border near Blaine, Washington, as you go into uh, Canada from Bellingham and Blaine and Seattle, there's a giant 80-foot-high arch, uh, peace arch it's called, uh, That's that right, straddles the border between the United States and Canada. Literally one leg is in Canada, one leg is in the United States. Uh, Sam Hill built that. He built that as a... Tribute to the friendship between Canada and the United States. That's all of concrete. If you go wow, yeah. about three miles east of the museum, there is a full-sized concrete replica of Stonehenge that Sam Hill built. He built that war memorial for the uh, people in Quilltaht County, uh, Washington, who were killed during World War One. And they are only. There were only eighteen of them killed, so
1: <laughs> one for each pillar, I guess, maybe.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much, and he kind of lost interest in the uh, in the whole thing. But they did complete it uh, in 1928, and you can that's free, and you can still tour that. And That's a very strange uh, thing to come across out again in the middle of nowhere. There's this full-size replica of Stonehenge as it would have looked when it was originally built in England.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that surprised me when I saw it. It, it looks like a Stonehenge before the elements got a hold of it over thousands of years because it's, it's perfectly fitted and uh, it's pretty interesting. It's uh, One thing about the museum, uh, Queen Marie uh, was there at the dedication in 1926. and. You mentioned that Sam Hill wanted to delay that he didn't want her to come there and I mean 1927 was the year I think if I'm remembering that right that was the year he wanted to have that done but she wanted to come she was touring I guess anyway and wanted to come by why, why did he want to delay it year what was the advantage of that to, for him do you think
2: because there was because there was no museum he had the attention of a, of a nat attention span of a, of a house like <laughs> and he had started to live there as a mansion He lost interest in it. He got involved in other things. He was having money problems. He promised the dancer, Loe Fuller, that he would turn into an art museum. She convinced Queen Marie that that was a perfect excuse for her to fulfill her long wish to visit America. So they got ahead of everything. The museum, when Queen Marie arrived, there was literally nothing there. The building wasn't finished. There were... Uh, there was rebar showing through, there were windows that weren't in place, there was no art, and Sam knew this was going to be just a public relations disaster, so he was trying to head her off until he could at least put something together, and as it turned out, she gave this incredible, eloquent speech about how she could see the dream of the places it was going to become, and it turned, everybody then started saying, gee, this is great, and uh, uh it, it came out okay although it was still fourteen years later before the museum opened.
0: Was she still alive when the museum actually opened?
2: She was not. She died she had died, Sam had died, and Lloyd Fuller had died. The only of the of the four creators of the museum the only one still alive when it opened was Alma Reckles.
0: Well it's good they didn't uh, wait then.
1: <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> they went through a lot of legal the whole 30s, was it seemed like, was consumed by legal infighting and battling and uh, over money, over the estate, over the museum, over just about everything, it seemed. But that was resolved by the time it opened? Or?
2: Yeah, what happened was that after Sam died, he had left uh, half of his estate to the museum and the other half to his two children, and uh, his wife and son weren't happy about that, so they sued. Uh, They said the museum was a crackpot scheme and it was never going to happen, and they wanted the entire estate. And it took about four years for it to get settled, and finally they did settle it, and the museum ended up with a a fair share of the assets. But this was in the midst of the Depression. It wasn't a great time to open an art museum out in the middle of nowhere. So (laughs) Uh, It it took quite a while and quite a lot of work by some people were dedicated to the memory of, of Sam Hill.
1: And it actually makes money. I mean, the the enterprise makes more money off of the off of the crop yield, and the, I mean the property, as opposed to museum sale, museum tickets. Is that is that true?
2: Yeah, it's it's never it's like most museums in America, it's never paid for itself by admissions. The uh, adult admission, I think, is twelve dollars now, and it costs about twenty dollars per visitor to maintain the museum. But it, so it first kept its doors open by it had a cattle ranch on, on, on Take Ridge. And it's done everything in its existence from uh, running a, a, uh, selling licenses for hunting on the grounds where you pay $200 dollars a year to hunt grouse and birds of various kinds. And that also got you a membership to the art Museum for a year. Uh, it has a demonstration road that Sam Hill built. It's got seven or eight hairpin turns, and they rent that out for skateboard races. But the biggest money maker is they leased uh, much of the property to wind turbines, a San Diego-based uh, wind turbine company. Oh wow! Uh-huh. Maybe a quarter of the of the museum's revenue currently comes from. Uh, their leases on the wind turbine.
0: Uh, that's ironic since Sorry. with your connections to San Diego that currently that's the big funder of this museum.
2: Yeah it's it's uh, it's that's the latest thing they've uh, had bequests from a particular family uh, in central Washington but one of the things about being a, a rural museum is that uh, there aren't any deep pockets around. There's not a you know, corporate sponsor, so you're going to put money into a museum that's out in rural Washington. So they've had to scramble throughout their existence, keep the doors open, but they've managed to do it.
1: Are there any family members uh, involved, you know, from the from, uh, from Sam Hill, from uh, Fuller, or from Speckles, I mean, that are still involved, their descendants, are they involved in the museum at all, or are they the, those families no longer... Uh, have a direct interest in it?
2: Yeah, the, there's none. There is none. None of the of the big four uh, have any uh, descendants that are involved in it at all. Uh, Louie Fuller didn't have any children. Uh, Sam's son was not interested in the museum. He was opposed to it.
1: He's opposed to it. that's. Pretty- who doesn't like museums, you know? Well, the guy who
0: was going to inherit yeah. the money otherwise.
2: Exactly. He was, every, everything the museum spent was money out of his pocket, he thought, so he had nothing to do with it. And uh, the Spreckles uh, had their own museum to look after in San Francisco, so they weren't involved.
1: You know, it's funny about Spreckles. Uh, the Spreckles name, I uh, I grew up in San Diego, and I remember the best theater in town was the Spreckles Theater in downtown San Diego.
2: Yeah, that that was John Spreckles. He was Alma Spreckles' brother-in-law. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, he owned a good part of San Diego County, and, and Adolph Spreckles, who was Alma's husband, owned a good part of San Francisco. So between the two of them, they, they did pretty well. I should, I should say something. I, I, I want to point out something, though. I, I don't want to make the museum sound like sort of a Ripley's Believe It or Not place. It's an outstanding museum. It's accredited by the American Alliance of Museums, which only accredits about 3% of all the museums in America. And Maryhill is accredited. It has a fabulous uh, collection of sculptures by Rodin. It has an absolutely uh, excellent uh, collection of Native American art and artifacts. Um, so it's got a lot going for it from, from just a museum point of view, but it's also got this history that you know no other museum compares to.
1: It's, it's, got, it's supposed to have an amazing collection of chess uh, chess games, right? Or chess pieces?
2: One of the directors, he was actually the director of the museum for 30-some years. He actually lived, he and his family lived in the basement of the museum for 30-plus years. Uh, he was an avid chess player. So he started collecting chess sets from around the world, and people started donating them, and they have now... I think more than 350 chestnuts that that are everything from made out of walrus ivory to things from ancient India, you know, from all over the world.
1: Hey, Steve, one last uh, question. How do we get there? We're in Sacramento. so Actually, we're doing this just for the benefit of our our listeners. We're doing this remotely. Tim and I are in Sacramento in different spaces. I'm in my home office. I think Tim is at his home or maybe in our office, and Steve is down in Arizona. So for the benefit of people in our state capital community who may be listening to this, what's the best way we get to uh, Mary Hill?
2: Two different routes you could take. You can go up five to Portland. You get to Portland, go... East on, uh, I believe it's US-84 along the Columbia River Gorge. It's a beautiful drive.
1: That's on the Washington side of the river then too, right?
2: No, that's on the Oregon side. Oh, okay. It, there's also a highway on the Washington side, so you can you can go either way on either side of the river. But it's very easy to get to. You, you get to Portland, you take a right you, on, uh, I believe it's US-84, which goes through the Columbia River Gorge. You drive all the way through the Dalles which is a town of about 12,000. Uh, about 20 miles east of there, you see a big bridge, the Sam Hill Memorial Bridge, it crosses the river, across the river and you follow the signs. It's pretty easy to get to. Uh, the other Great. way is to go, go to Vancouver, Washington, which is across the river from Portland, take a right on that highway and follow that that goes right by
0: the museum and steve so how do people find your book when did your book come out and what's the best way for people to get your book
2: the book is out you can get it on amazon i have a page on amazon with my other books um you can get it either by doing my name uh or the title of the book it'll be a sale on at Barnes & Noble and all the other bookstores.
0: Uh, I noticed that you have written quite a few other books uh, on the history for dummies theme. How did that happen? The fourth edition's come out. <laughs>
2: well, the first, the, the I, I was approached by a, a colleague when I was still working at the Sacramento Bee. Uh, he had an agent who wanted to know if I wanted to do a US history for dummies. And uh, they figured I was well-suited for a dummies book. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it takes one to know one type thing. High <laughs> praise. Uh, so I did the I did the U.S. history book uh, for Dummies. It's now in its fourth edition. It's been published in Chinese and German, and it's uh, just kind of chugged along. Uh, the other two Dummies books I've done. I did one on the American Revolution, and I did one on the Great Depression. Uh, the they came out of the. the The Wiley publishing company that does the Dummies books, they were pleased with uh, the U.S. history book, so they asked me to do these other two. The Maryhill book is my eighth book now.
0: What's next up for you? What's the next subject for your next book?
2: Well, I'm actually writing a book uh, now that's tentatively titled uh, Year of the Gun, How Bat, Wyatt, Custer, Jesse, and Two Bills, Wild and Buffalo, Created the Wild West During America's 100th Birthday. (laughs) I figure out what that book is about. Good luck.
1: Yeah. That's about 20% of the whole content. That's the longest title I've ever heard, right there. <laughs> that's
2: it. Then it goes right to the index, and that's
1: the whole book. <laughs> that's that's a, I like that plan. Oh, All footnotes. Great. great. Steve Wiegand, thank you uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's just a great book, and it's really, uh, it's just it's odd. It's just one of those oddities. It's a lot of fun, I think, to read, and a lot of characters in it, and there's a lot going on, and I'm, as we mentioned earlier. So... Um, Thank you very much, Tim Foster. Thank you very much. Thank you. And this is John Howard, and we will catch you next time around.